Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Well, hello and welcome to today's episode of the High Energy Health Podcast. I am Miriam Paninsky, Consciousness Programs Director, EFT Practitioner and Healer at EFT Universe. And I am lucky to be the guest host for my friend and mentor and teacher, Dawson Church. And I am even luckier because today I get to talk to Dr. Michael Lennox. Michael, it is so great to have you here. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know Dr. Lennox yet, I'd love for, um, I just want to introduce him briefly. So Dr. Michael Lennox is a psychologist and astrologer and expert in dreams and dream interpretation. He teaches classes in self-investigation to a worldwide audience and is the host of the weekly podcast, Conscious Embodiment, Astrology and Dreams. He's also the author of Llewellyn's Complete Dictionary of Dreams. Llewellyn's Little Book of Dreams, Dream Sight, and his newest book, which just came out in January, I believe, which we will talk about, Psychic Dreamer. He's a highly sought after media expert. Dr. Lennox has been seen internationally on many television shows, beginning with sci-fi networks, the dream team with Annabelle and Michael in January 2003. Since then, he has also been featured on numerous networks and cable television venues, including the NBC's Emmy Award winning Starting Over Soap Talk. The Wayne Brady Show, and many others. His radio appearances talking about the power of dreams number in hundreds. So Dr. Lennox's expertise has attracted global audience, as you can see, which are over 120k followers spanning his social media platforms. And Dr. Lennox obtained his master's and doctorate in psychology from the Chicago School Astrology and Personality. His doctoral dissertation is published by Lambert Academic Publishing out of Germany. Michael, again, so glad to have you here. You you did the full bio, Miriam. I did the full bio. I was you just did. so impressed. I was just uh, so impressed. I was you. like, I couldn't stop going. And you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Right, you know, especially is, with yeah. someone who is writing a PhD myself, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like it's a, it's are a Are you really? Are yeah. you do, how you doing, honey? Because writing a dissertation is like the most, one of the you most know? difficult life processes when you face yeah, it. Yeah, try doing it and being a mom of two little ones. You know, and that's funny that you <laughs> I went to grad school with lots of moms who had careers and children. And my thought was, how are you doing this? Because it was overwhelming to me and I didn't have kids or family. It is fun. It is crazy. But, you know, children keep you grounded, so you don't get to lift off as other kids. (laughs) Well, but to turn back to you, there are so many things I want to talk about, and we kind of like have to hone it in with some. But again, I just want to mention Psychic Dreamer just Mm -hmm. came out. Yes. So exciting. Such a beautiful read, I just want to say. I I had the pleasure of reading it, and I can just recommend it to everyone out there. And I want to start at the very beginning. 
where you actually kind of like start very academically in a way to call up the Merriam dictionary and the, and saying, what is intuition? Because you start by saying, well, everyone is intuitive. All of us are intuitive. And I'm wondering, what does that mean? How come we are all intuitive and some of us get to be in touch with our intuition and some of us don't. And for some of us, it seems to be a natural thing. And for some of us, it seems to be something that we may be able to foster. And that's a lot of the part of your part of your book, I think, how to fostering getting in touch with your intuition. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that. Sure. Well, let's start with my definition of intuition, which is the ability to synthesize new information from the information that's readily available in the room. You know, so that's really the idea is a skill to sort of pick apart all of the different ways that we're receiving information and then come up with something, you know, that is not obvious in the room. Right. So as opposed to what like psychic is, I would call psychic ability directly tapping into another dimension where time doesn't exist. And, and a person who's got a good psychic ability is able to perceive stuff from that dimension that's free of, of the constraints of time. But intuition is something that is, is embodied into all of us, and it's this ability to have sort of extra perception based on what stuff is like in the room. So one of the ways that we talk about this sort of colloquially is people will call their intuition the still, small voice. And what I like about that is, is that our thinking mind, the part of us that we identify like who we are, where we are, when we are, voice that we know ourselves to be, that's a loud voice, <laughs> right? There's nothing still or small about it. And the idea that intuition is from that other place of quieter ways that we are perceiving is something that is interfered with by our thinking mind, our rational thinking mind. Mm -hmm. So the idea of everybody's intuitive, I think this is a pre-installed human condition. The sense that people have, the gut instincts that people have, there's lots of different ways of describing it. I like an intuition to be very much like singing in this way. If you can speak, you can sing. That doesn't mean I want to hear you, right? <laughs> and the people we want to hear sing are the ones who have a gift in their ear for replicating tone, right? So that's the skill. So yes, everyone can intuit. Everyone has gut instincts. Everyone has subtle perceptions. Everyone is able to tap into information that is not readily on the rational sort of perception you know, place. And some people have an inborn ability to do that at a greater level than others. And yet, I think that everyone can increase that ability. And dreaming and paying attention to your dreams is one way I think that we we tap in. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to, to describe it. And it's kind of like just tapping into what was interesting was saying using the metaphor of the voice and of singing, it's actually about the quiet. Yes, it's about the quiet and the receptivity. And the, the beautiful thing about dreams is, is that that rational, loud voice that interferes with the subtle perceptions that we're capable of goes mm -hmm. to sleep when we go to sleep which is why mm -hmm. dreams allow us to step into this sort of multidimensional place of all kinds of perception. And so my belief is, is that one of the ways a person can increase their waking life intuitive experience is simply by enriching how they interact with their dream state, because the very act of going into that sleepy place allows us to tap into the ways we perceive when the loud mind is quiet. 
And you already mentioned kind of like, and so I want to kind of jump back to the title because you were saying that there is a difference between intuition and the psychic ability, yet you call your book The Psychic Dreamer. So I'd love to hear a little bit how it got to that title because it does seem also still like something that you open up as a possibility for all of us. Well, I think that the unsexiness of this story is, is that the idea for the book and the title of the book came first and it came from my publisher, Llewellyn. I'm their resident dream guy. They wanted a book describing the, not the standard dreams where we interpret them for their psychological meaning and reflection of our deep unconscious processes. They wanted a book that was talking about the mystical experiences that people have in the dream state. So they reached out and they said, will you write this book? And I said, well, of course I'll write this book. I'm a writer, I love dreams. And it gave me an opportunity to learn and explore the experiences that can happen in the dream state, some of which I've had direct experiences with, but some of which I haven't. So we got to sort of leave the standard dream that we interpret that's a you know scary nightmare about our fears and our resistances that live in the unconscious and an opportunity to explore precognitive dreams, dreams that are shared between people, dreams where we're visited by folks who have passed away, dreams of problem solving and downloads of you know mystical information. There's all sorts of fantastic phenomenon that happens when we go to sleep that is also ubiquitously human. More people are having these dream experiences than you might think. And by sort of focusing on that, collecting the stories and sharing them with people through the book, I think that we can help inspire people to utilize working with their dreams to have a greater experience of mystical phenomenon and intuitive perception. Yeah, fascinating. And I think that's, I just want to kind of like, just tell the audience that this is kind of like what this dream is about. You're just introducing different forms of called the mystical dreams or kind of like a range of different dreams that are not the standard, not the standard kind of like involuntary dream, but also introducing the potential of us finding ways of potentially influencing or changing our dream pattern or dream experience. But I want to circle back a little bit to what you said, what you call the standard dreams and the interpretation of dreams, which funnily enough, that's, you know, that's Sigmund Freud, my fellow countryman. That's who I studied at 18, just down the road from where he lived. Of course, you know, there's like a lot of things written about dream symbolism and how Freud and psychoanalysis kind of like interpreted dreams. What do you think about dream symbols? And I know you're, of course, you know, you're a psychologist as well. And I know you studied that stuff too. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering what your take is on and where you've landed on with symbolism and interpretation of symbols in dreams. So my relationship with interpreting dreams actually started with Freud as well. When I was 15 years old, my mom started master's in social work. And so lots of psychological books would show up on her bookshelf. And I was very engaged with my mom's bookshelf because, you know, I thought things that showed up there were kind of cool. So I saw Freud's interpretation of dreams on her bookshelf at an age that I was old enough to know who Freud was, to appreciate that there was a direct connection between this figure in history and the dream world. And I was an avid, vivid dreamer from the time I was, you know, two and three years old. So I read the book. Now, I don't remember what I got of reading Freud at 15, but I certainly (laughs) understood that dreams had value 
that they reflected matters and material that was typically hidden in the unconscious. And Freud talked about creating this talking cure, this free association experience, and that he called dreams the royal road to the unconscious. Mm -hmm. I just like that idea, especially because I was so richly connected to my own dream life as a teenager that there really was something to the idea of beholding them in a more sacred way. So just like adults do in workplaces, kids in high school stand around hallways and say to each other, oh my God, I had the craziest dream last night. And so that's how I got started in interpreting dreams because, well, I read Freud. He said you could interpret a dream and people would share their dreams with me. And I would just respond intuitively to what I was hearing. And even at 16 and 17 years old, I was having consistent experiences of people widening their eyes, saying things like, my God, that makes so much sense. That's so interesting. So I knew that I had a gift and I just played with the gift from my teenage years into my adulthood. And I followed those breadcrumbs and it, it led me to an extraordinary place. Now, when I was speaking about dreams extemporaneously in the beginning of doing this as a, as a teenager and a young adult, I wasn't aware of what I was doing. I was just doing something that was coming naturally to me. But because I spent my whole life following this path, I did come upon a point in my journey where it's like, Michael, you got to figure out what it is you're doing. Like, what is it that's happening when you're listening to a dream? So here's what I discovered. Dreams are stories. The language is symbolic in nature. It's not rational. It's a series of symbols that come together to tell a story. What I found that I was doing fast and intuitively was that I was perceiving a potential universal meaning connected to an item in a dream, whether that item was a physical thing or an animal, I would look at, well, what's the use of this item or what's the quality of this animal? So like right here, I'm at my desk, I'm holding up a pencil. A pencil, not only does a pencil write, and so therefore it's connected with expression, it's temporary because it's erasable, and if I were holding up this pencil and, and sort of talking about, well, this has a meaning of self-expression, nobody would question that because everybody understands you write with a pencil. Therefore, mm -hmm. it must have the symbolic universal meaning of the capacity to express. So if the dream is my pencil broke, it's a dream about the inability to clearly and easily express oneself in that given moment, right? I'm making this up, obviously, right? But that idea that pencil might have that meaning based on what it is or what its use is, that contains, therefore, then the universal meaning of the symbol. So what I found that my gift was wasn't that I know something that you don't know. Like, you accepted what I said about pencil, right? You didn't question it. You didn't say, well, wait a minute. What about when the pencil, like, makes, you know, a smoothie in the blender? It's like, but pencils <laughs> don't do that, right? So what my gift is that I have this way that my mind can hear the story of the dream. And while I'm hearing it, I'm clocking in to the universal meaning of the items that are telling the story in the dream. Because my gift is that I can process that information so fast that by the time you're done telling me the dream, I am ready to discuss what the story behind the story of the dream is.
fascinating. It's intuitive. It's a way my mind works. It's not magic. And it consistently allows me to hear a dream and not do what most people would do, which is project. Meaning if you tell me a dream about your mother and I say, well, this is a dream about her being toxic and, 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 and chaotic and violent. It's like, well, that's my mother. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if I hear your dream about your mother and interpret it through the lens of my relationship with my challenging mother, that's not pure dream interpretation. Well, yours what... too. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's true. Maybe that's a, <laughs> a silly example because we, so many of us have <laughs> yeah. challenging mothers. But you understand the point is. No, absolutely. That, yeah. yeah. Uh, so therapists are trained never, never to interpret dreams. In fact, I right. had lots of lots of conversations with professors and students and people in college, not, you know, grad school. I was in my thirties during grad school because I wasn't going to let anybody diminish my gift because I know who I am. But I certainly understood why therapists were being trained not to directly interpret dreams because dreams are sacred; they belong to the dreamer. How dare anybody presume to interpret a dream of somebody else? And yeah. I have a God-given gift. And nothing can take that away from me. And so what I trust in the world of consciousness, right? How do I justify this in consciousness? How I justify it is, is that if you have a dream and you are somehow drawn to me or a book that I have written, then that attraction of me or my book towards you, the dreamer, is as sacred as you having the dream. And mm -hmm. so therefore my gift comes to you because your consciousness drew it in. That's sort of how I understand the sort of okayness of this model that the dream is sacred, nobody should touch it, but I feel perfectly confident about yeah. interpreting your dream because of this gift that I know that I have. Well, it's also like people, like psychologists and academics after post-Freud have learned that a lot of those interpretations were a little bit one-dimensional and kind of projecting. And, wow. and and we have learned like how much projection yes. Freud was doing himself. So people got, you know, people without the gift that you have That's right. naturally That's got right. cautious. <laughs> In fact, you could tell the story of what happened between Freud, who came first, and Jung, who came in the next generation, who really created what would be the f modern dream sensibility uh -huh. that we all work uh -huh. with, even if they don't know it's Jungian. Here's the difference. Freud was neurotic and he was obsessed with sex. And I don't think he liked his mother very much. And this is verifiable. You can read his biography. Um, <laughs> and so his theory around psychology and the structure of the human unconscious was very reductive. He reduced everything to the sexual impulse and the sexual drive. The Oedipal complex is also erotic in nature, and it was his main focus of how he sort of developed his kids. And it's not like what he posited was wrong. It just was not universal. It was one slice of one way exactly. that the human psyche works when sex is the drive and libido and, you know, mm. it is, un, you know, bridled and Jung comes along in the next generation. In fact, when Freud and Jung first met, they thought they had a match made in heaven. Jung thought he found his perfect mentor. And while Freud has lots of followers, he saw in Jung his heir apparent. He was like, that guy's talented. He's the one I want to pass my mantle to. And relationship that led them to meet and connect 
in what looked like at first going to be a spectacular partnership that fell apart in a couple of years because they varied so differently on how they approached things. And yeah, Freud very different. And Freud thought there was this one drive, and, and Jung thought there were many. Yeah. I love that excursion, by the way. I'm all into, <laughs> into that and Jungian theories. I want to go into the chapters in our next segment because we have lots of other things to talk about here that our audience will be fascinated by. Please tune right back in with us. We'll go on a short little break and we'll be right back with this interview with this fascinating conversation with Dr. Michael Lennox. Thank you so much. Welcome back to today's episode of High Energy Health. I am Miriam Paninski today in conversation with Dr. Michael Lennox and in specific about his newest book, Psychic Dreamer. Dreamer. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I wanted to jump and we just already said we established that Michael has been exploring different forms of dreams that are different than than what we would call a standard dream, whatever that may mean. And of course, there's a lot of fascination, and especially in the recent years, there's been so much fascination around that, and particularly about lucid dreams. And like, and you mentioned Wagner and others that have kind of like explored that. And I want to start a little bit kind of like diving into lucid dreams, though I want to talk especially where I'd like to go later is the visitation dreams. Personally, very fascinating. You describe some of your own profound experiences when it yeah. comes to profound yeah. experiences, when it comes to lucid dreaming. So I'd, I'd love to for you to to share some of them if, if you wouldn't yeah. mind. No, but also, to. I'd love if you can answer that in kind of like that swag, basically. Um, what do you see as kind of like a purpose of having or creating lucid dreams? Because you get very like as Wagner kind of like pretty simple instructions as to how to guide your subconscious to at some point create a lucid dream. But I'd love to learn more about what you see as the purpose yeah. of doing so, actually. Let's start with that, because I think it's, an, it's a valuable conversation. Like, what's the purpose of this? One of the things that a, sort of a modern, spiritually oriented person is going to be working with in this day and age is the idea of, there's lots of different ways of describing it. Manifestation is one co-creating with spirit is another. It's the idea that we are making our lives happen with more than just what meets the eye, right? And that there's, there's ways that we can work with energy to create new experiences of life. And it's the idea that we are powerfully creative, we're in a creative landscape, and that we're making our lives how we choose and what we do. So in dreams, we are in a landscape where anything can happen and probably will, and we would never question our magic or our majesty or our ability to create absolutely anything because in the dream world, we expect that anything can happen and probably will and that and we can be profoundly creative. So anything that can allow us in our waking lives to remember what it's like to be in a what feels like a magical landscape where really anything can happen and we can create the dream world, I think allows us to be more steeped in our co-creation spiritually when we're awake. That's like the loose sort of value of why it might be interesting to explore becoming more lucid in your dream state. 
So the idea of lucid, everybody has had at least one dream in their life where they've been in the dream and they just have the thought while they're dreaming as part of the dream content. Oh my God, I think I'm dreaming. That's a lucid dream. But there can be exponential ways of experiencing lucidity in dreams that is so rich. It's why there are books about it and workshops about it and lots of classes about it and people are are chasing the idea of increasing the ability to be lucid, I think, because the experiences that can happen are so rich. And I think, again, I'm repeating myself, when we have a phenomenal experience of being more lucid in dreams, then we're more likely to trust our ability to be profoundly creative in our waking life intuitively. I know people who are so steeped in their ability to lucid dream, they can have a dream that they're loving, wake up in the morning, make a choice not to get out of bed, go back to sleep and join the dream already in process that they had left. That's, That's crazy. Now, That's I've never crazy. had that experience no. because I've not chased lucid dreaming. But because I've spent my entire life in a devoted spiritual practice and cleaning out the wounds that inhibited my ability mm -hmm. to be in that spiritual energy, and I've lived a bunch of decades, I'm not a young man anymore, I got to a point where I had two lucid dreams in the last 10 years that were beyond anything I've ever experienced. The one that was 100% lucid. This was a dream of just me sitting on my couch in my apartment. And I, in that dream, sitting on my couch in my apartment, I was as awake as I am right now, as clear-headed, as physically in sensation. The visceral... Everything. I was awake. I was awake. I was awake. I was awake. Only I was screaming at the top of my lungs going, oh my God, I'm asleep. I pointed to my bedroom. I'm sleeping right in that room, right here, right now. But I'm here. I'm in my home. It's daytime. That was it. So when I tell you that that experience rivaled any outrageous phenomenon that I've experienced or the deepest plant medicine dive I've ever done. Like mm -hmm. that, that experience alone was right up there. Why? Because it proves this thing that I've sort of been trying to like express that our magical abilities to create anything, absolutely anything in the dream life is not, not here in our waking life. It's just a different dimension. So it has different laws and different ways of operating, but we live in both. And by paying attention to any dreams as a routine part of a spiritual practice, we'll get all people tethering between this waking world and the dream state that are different dimensions, but both powerfully creative. So I had a second lucid dream a couple of years later, so maybe seven or eight years ago, same apartment. That was a good apartment for, uh, for dream experiences. This was slightly different in that it wasn't as bright. It wasn't brightly lit like daytime. Everything had a sepia tone, like a slight brown filter, right? So I knew mm -hmm. I wasn't in sort of waking life state because of this color of the air. But it was the same kind of alertness, awakeness, outside of that dim light that I'm feeling right now. Only in this dream, I'm in a park and I walk up to a bench, a picnic bench, and there's like five men sitting around the picnic bench. And I walk up to them and I just say, 
hey, guys, you, you know that we're all dreaming right now, right? And they all just <laughs> sort of looked up and they sort of not like they were already talking like they were there before I arrived. And they're like, yep, yep, we know. Come on in. Have a seat. And that was it. I woke up. But I will tell you, I, nothing could pry from me the belief that every one of those five men at that picnic bench were alive at, on the planet at this time having a lucid dream about being in a park, sitting around a table with five other guys. So there's, there, there are all of these ways that people can learn how to increase their lucid dreaming. And, and so I'll sort of circle back to where we started. The reason why I think it's valuable to do this is because intuition and perception that's outside dimensional realm, it's a muscle. And mm -hmm. when we're paying attention to the experience of going into sleep, visiting the multidimensional world where we are free to be completely creative and intuitive and powerful in that realm, increases our ability to stay tethered to the same level of intuition when we're awake. Yeah, that was such a great way of explaining this. And the purpose was that was a, such a beautiful rounded answer. We'll be right back. We'll be in another little break. Please tune right back in with us in just a couple of minutes for high energy health. Thank you so much. Welcome back to today's episode of High Energy Health. I'm Miriam Paninsky and in conversation with Dr. Michael Lennox. And we were just talking about lucid dreams. And you were, Michael, you were talking about this being like intuition, question of muscles, basically. Yes. So if you want to kind of like talk us through yeah. a little bit of that kind of like, because you're giving some really kind of hands-on instructions on how just to get this process started. In your yeah, book. there's a technique that, that is very common out there. If you Google this, you'd probably stumble upon people talking about this. It's the idea that if you want to wake up lucidity in dreams, look at your hands. Literally, you hold up your hands and you look at them 10, 20, 30, 40 times a day, every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. The idea is if you do this during your waking life, eventually you're going to have a dream where you see your hands and that will trigger your conscious awareness, even though you're sleeping, into a, just enough alertness to be like, ah, my hands, I'm dreaming. This is that thing. So I heard that years ago when I was, you know, chilling about my life, you know, as an expert in dreams and learning all about dreams. But when I went to grad school and I learned about what some of the brain structural stuff that's happening in REM sleep, I was like, well, of course that works, because one of the things we're doing in REM sleep is we're forming short-term memory by reliving everything we experienced during the day so that the brain can say, ah, that's important, that becomes memory, that's not important, that becomes something we forget. And this is something that the brain is doing every time we go into REM. So if you look at your hands 40 times a day, eventually in that way that the brain is recycling imagery from the waking life during the day, you're going to see your hands. And I love that idea that there was, in fact, a structural, technical thing that the brain was doing during dreaming REM sleep that would make this technique of lucid in, you know, instigation work. 
So look at your hands, kids. Look at them a lot, and you're going to show up in a dream, and you will be on your way to increasing your lucid dream experience. Yeah. Thanks so much for pointing that out because it is, it's just kind of like triggering the subconscious over mm -hmm. and over and over again. So you kind That's of right. like, yeah, I definitely wanted to cover and I wanted to, because Michael is also you called a mystic. And I think that the spiritual aspect and the mysticism aspect is such a, such an important one. And is definitely something that, that hit very deep for me also. Mm -hmm. And especially the your chapter on visitation dreams. And I'd also, that's also kind of like, I'm just going to keep this aside for now. But I'd, if we have the chance to kind of like talk into, talk a little bit about you saying, you know, sleeping, the moon, the she, the death, the feminine, and all mm -hmm. of these kind of parts and kind of like being visited by whatever it is, higher entities, guardian angels, whatever it is, something I have actually experienced massively in my in my childhood, I had something that was at that time called an imaginary friend. Fabulous. Yeah, which was, of course, much more than that. She was with me for for many years. And she was both in my time when I was awake, but also in my dreams. Yeah. And that kind of like also sometimes I remember as a little child, I couldn't sometimes then kind of like, I sometimes didn't know whether I was dreaming or awake. Right, right, right. In that sense. So I'd love for you to talk a little sure. bit about visitation dreams. You know, the structure of visitation dream is what clues you in that it's a visitation dream. If you have a dream of someone who's passed away, and it's a very involved dream storyline in the way that dreams tend to be, that's probably you working some stuff out in your psyche and they are appearing in your dream. A standard visitation dream has to be singular in setting. Most of them take place in the room that people are sleeping in, right? Grandma or whoever's past is, you know, in the room or sits on the bed. A lot of these dreams are described as taking place on park benches. And I thought that that, that was just a movie trope. But when I started collecting the stories, it turned out a lot of these dreams take on a bench in nature. And the conveyance is always something singular and simple as well. The person who visits often won't speak. If they do speak, the words are very simple, like all is well or I love you. And that's the felt conveyance. There's a sense of all is well and love and connection. And that's it. The thing, though, that, that is juicy about visitation dreams is the way they can transform someone who has no idea that they're about to become deeply spiritual, but they have a dream like this, and it's such a numinous, powerful experience that is so heightened and so, for the lack of a better way of saying it, real, that the idea that we are connected past the body leaving at death as becoming something you know, that they believe in fully. I've had experiences that moved me to tears just in listening to someone say, I pulled over to the side of the road driving to San Diego because uh, I was tired and my grandma just died. I was going down to see the family and bam, she visited this young man in the car and it changed the course of his life. Mm -hmm. It made him someone interested and curious about the much bigger energies than just his three-dimensional embodied life and it radically shifted him. Because people who have these experiences will report nothing else felt like it and they felt altered because they, they experienced the connection as full and real and bona fide. That's really touching. It's really moving as you also described this. Yeah. Kind of going back to you also bringing in the chapter of visitation dreams, you do bring in kind of like, it feels like a process of, of surrender and letting go that's involved yeah. in this too. Yeah. 
and you're bringing in the death and kind of like thinking about the mystics, what immediately came to mind, I don't know if you've heard that, but Ramana Maharshi was at some point in his mystical experience saying, I'm going to lie down and I'm, I, ch I will choose to die. Yes. And he was lying down and he said, I'm going to choose to die. And his physical form didn't die. But there, but he says after that, he's there's something about his personality and what his the ego, the death of the ah, ego, the transformation, basically. Beautiful. So I'd, I'd love to hear some kind of like something along that in terms of like that you did choose to bring in the moon, the she, the feminine, the death. Sure. Well, I think we're what we're talking about is the idea of this multidimensional perception notion. Like, let's staying in the realm of visitations. I think one of the things that's juicy about this idea that in dreams we can connect to people who have passed tells me that we're as connected to those people while we are awake. But we have to go to sleep to feel that connection more directly because the waking mind that would dismiss such perceptions isn't there to dismiss them. And so that we experience the connectedness of the person who's passed as full and rich. But when we wake up, it's not like they go away. We just can't directly perceive them. So uh, if that's accurate, right, if, if, if what I'm describing is like so in any way, then it would stand to reason that in that sleep state, when we're connected to this other dimension, that every energetic experience that exists in that dimension is available to us. So this is one of those kind of woo-woo ideas that we get these downloads, right? That we might go to sleep and wake up changed, like what you described in almost the samadhi experience of this, uh, of this guru teacher that you were talking about, or your experience of the childhood, you know, imaginary friend that's not really an imaginary friend who can traverse both dimensions, right? Your waking mm -hmm. life and your dream life. So then one of the things I think that happens in dreams is we get what we might call mystical downloads. We might have a dream experience that feels radically different than like some chaotic, and then I was in the clown car, and then we went up the hill, and you know, then we were underwater, and then mm -hmm. we were playing the bagpipes. It's like, okay. <laughs> but there are ways in which I think we are fundamentally altered because we connect to energies that are much bigger than us in our waking life, but that once we quiet that mind, we're fully able to receive the downloads. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about the dream state as feminine, as connected to death. In fact, I say a prayer every time I go to sleep. I welcome the sweet death of sleep because I think it's a sacred thing to not fear death and fall into that realm that's the mm -hmm. dream state that might be just practice for death that allows us to reconnect to that dimension where, where these energies that, that are there, that exist, that can be inserted into us and change mm -hmm. us. We wake up. It's like radical us. receivership, basically. Yes, radically receiving. You know? yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. We have to go on another on our last little break. Please tune right back in with us just in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Welcome back to today's episode of High Energy Health. I'm Miriam Paninsky and in conversation with Dr. Michael Lennox, our last little segment. And we were just talking about visitation dreams. And 
And Michael, we are featuring again, we're seeing like many, many different, different, we have just talked about two different types of dreams, really, but there is many different chapters. But I'm curious to hear from you personally, describing all of these different dream experiences. What kind of dream have you nurtured most for yourself in terms of serving you, serving your higher purpose, serving your mission here? What is it? Where have you personally paid the most attention or put in the most effort or intention? And intention is another good, good word that I just wanted to. (laughs) Both the intention and attention. I would say it is using my dream world as a way to sort of help answer problems, get more information. I call it petitioning dreams. It's inside the chapter. The chapter in the book is problem solving and dreams of that connect us to you know, the higher mind. In my personal life, though, I've done a lot of uh, what I call petitioning of dreams, where I'll be in a conflict of some sort, ambivalent about something or making a decision or a choice. And I'll be like, all right, I'm a little stuck. Let's use the dream world to help get an answer about this problem that can't possibly come from my conscious mind. I want to knock on the doorway of my unconscious. So I do this, I do this as just a form of of prayer or intention setting before bed. But if you're just beginning this as an idea, I would recommend writing it down, that you get a dream journal and that you write in the dream journal, hey, I want guidance and information through the dream world tonight about blah, blah, blah problem. Um, And then a dream comes and you have to work with it. You have to accept the dream that comes and trust that you're going to be given some valuable information. I love my my latest little story of this. The last time this happened, it was a while back, about 10 years ago, I was dating a young man and I was ambivalent about this. It did, there was something off. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to stay in this engagement. And I, because I was feeling so ambivalent, I petitioned my dreams. Do I want to? So I had a dream that night that was so literally connected to this. The dream was that I was at a celebration for a wedding, like an anniversary party. It was my party. I was aware that my partner had been behaving badly and I was mad at him and he was outside of the room. Then he comes into the room and shows up. He's my father. (laughs) Yes. So I was like, all right, we're breaking up. We're breaking up. We're breaking up because my dream life, my unconscious was saying to me, Michael, you're ambivalent because it's a little different, but it's still coming from It's that pattern. That's Mm -hmm. right. And it was, and I ended it. Now, one will not always get such an overt, obvious message in the dream. So sometimes if you're going to do this work of petitioning dreams, you have to trust the dream that comes. And you have to also trust that the unconscious and the conscious mind are doing the work. If you petition with a question and the dream comes, doesn't feel like it's giving you the clarity because it's not the obvious version that I just told, you got to trust that the unconscious knows what it's doing and that you are shifted by virtue of asking the question in your waking life, having the dream, and then the next day just integrating the information that came. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's lots of stories in history about people getting wisdom and dreams, solving problems and dreams, coming up with ideas and dreams. And I think that that can be taken to a proactive place where you actually ask your dream state to give you some information. So that's something that I've done my whole life. 
and the visitation dream experiences and the lucid ones that I've shared with that are so spectacular weren't experiences that I was chasing. They were just experiences that came because I mm -hmm. spent my life tapping into those energies so I, I get to have those experiences. But in terms of like working doggedly with my dream life to solve problems and reveal unconscious information, that's what I've done the most. That makes a lot of sense when it comes to, because you really kind of like emphasize the power of intention on many different ways. If you wouldn't mind just saying a few words about that and how, like giving our audience a little bit of advice in terms of like where, you know, what is a powerful method of intention setting? And you were yeah. mentioning the dream journal. So clarity and getting clear in your language is like one thing and writing this stuff down is really, really important. But if you want to say a little bit more about that, that would be fantastic. You know, let's talk for a second about the placebo effect. Ha! Because I hate that word. I hate yeah. the minimization of the word. I mean, literally, scientists are literally looking at the power of the mind to create physiological changes in the body just from what we're talking about, the power of intention. So that person who takes the pill, who doesn't know if it's a real pill or a sugar pill and still has the same impact as the person yeah. they know is taking the real yep. pill. That's how powerful intention is, yeah. kids. There's no difference between that phenomenon that we call the placebo effect and setting desired intentions using the mind and words as a form of directed thought. Mm -hmm. Right? So the conscious mind will always be a yes to what we desire, right? Because our desires are born in our conscious awareness. And we say yes to that. It's in the unconscious, though, that we're saying no to life. That's where we are aware of where we're afraid, where we're hesitant, where we're in fear or grief or rage or something that inhibits us, right? So one of the things that's important about any intention setting process is that we allow for the idea that our conscious awareness might be a yes, but it's the unconscious that's a no. So I, I encourage people who are actively manifesting things that they desire, which is the power of intention, to also use the dream world to say, all right, is there anything I'm not aware of that would stop me from this magnificent unfolding I desire or would inhibit me or is in my way? then the dream world will take you right to where the fearful no is so that you can wake up and more readily receive the good that you're intending, right? So then the two things that to wrap up this sort of like, you know, the overview is do not underestimate the power of intention. The mind is a creative tool and its weapon, if you will, are words. So putting words and intention and filling that thought with the felt feeling that it's already come, that's standard manifestation technique. But then also allowing for where you're saying no, I think is the more complete picture. It's necessary. Otherwise, that's 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 the charge you're going to fill with the intentions. And that's the manifestation. Yeah. If you like keep yeah. if there's a subconscious block or a subconscious protector, as I call it, says, no, 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 that's, that's not right. that's, that's not right. safe. That's not OK. That for some reason we can't that's we can't go there. That's the kind of emotion we're going to put into that. Yes. And that intention. some of those blocks are fear and limitation mm -hmm. related. 
So one of the things that I'll teach when I'm talking about intention setting language is that if you're creating the intention that I want to receive this thing, I want to receive, you know, unexpected income, you also want to put into intentional language the idea of releasing that which might inhibit your ability to receive that thing. And I always encourage, I let go and release everything that might block this uh, unfolding that I desire, known and unknown, conscious and unconscious. And so it is. That and allows so the brain and the mind to be like, I might not know about how I'm resisting, but I'm going to speak into that which is unknown and unconscious so that I might have a better experience of manifestation. And so it is. What a perfect ending, Michael. Yay, Thank you so much for being on, on this so podcast. Great. Please check out his book. Check out his website, michaellenox.com, L-E-N-N-O-X.com. So making sure you check out all of his offerings, this latest book, which is really an incredible book, such a beautiful read, such beautiful experiences that you also read and share with yourself and others. It was just such a pleasure to talk to you today, Michael. Oh, Thank you so much. Miriam. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. And we will hear you again next week for High Energy Health. Thank you so much. <laughs>